From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. After their whirlwind run through the NCAA tournament, you can understand if the Gator basketball team needed a moment to catch their breath. Now that some time has passed and perspective is easier to achieve, today you'll hear our postseason chat with Mike White recapping the run to the Elite Eight and the season on the whole. We'll also sit down for our weekly roundtable with FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry discussing gymnastics, football, baseball, and more. But first, the Gators' second season under Mike White put the program back in the national conversation with an NCAA tournament run that came up just short of the Final Four. In a discussion looking both backward and forward, we begin by asking Coach White how he views the joy of making the Elite Eight against the pain of seeing the season end one win short of the promised land. Probably about half and half, 50-50, yeah, where the first three or four days after the South Carolina loss in the Elite Eight, it was all about that loss, mm-hmm. and it, it was about the sting. Uh, it was it was really tough. Then it hit home that we had a great year, you know, and, and we made an Elite Eight run. We were a team that, that wasn't, uh, you know, even a, a preseason top 25 team, and mm-hmm. we did a lot of special things, a lot to be proud of. And so there was a, a probably a couple day period there where um, you know that was able to sink in the positives of the season, and uh, and now it's probably you know about fifty fifty. Uh, I'm sure it, it will remain that way till we tip it up next season. How much do you reflect back on it? And, and part of that fifty fifty is thinking about things you could have done differently. Mm-hmm. Is there a lot of teeth gnashing that goes on in that? Or, oh, absolutely, or is it... absolutely. Um, and I haven't watched the Elite Eight game. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't get myself to do it. I when I think about watching it, I just there's a pit in my stomach. I just don't want to watch it because I know I'll relive that misery of of that loss in terms of being so close to going to a Final Four, mm-hmm. and I'll have I'll relive it for another two to four to six or eight days. Heck, who knows? And I just um, I I don't want that uh, unhealthy feeling right now. I've had enough of it lately. <laughs> you know. You don't even get a, a chance to rest in, in, in our business. You you go from um, the the season of the conference tournament to the NCAA tournament, and, and obviously we're fortunate to keep winning. Uh, and then just when you think, okay, we lost, but the blessing is now I get maybe a couple days with my family or we, we mm-hmm. can regroup, but you go right into recruiting. And then you go into player meetings, and we've already started workouts for next season. So we literally have not had a chance to take a step back and, and breathe. Uh, it's all part of it. But, we, you know, we hope to do that maybe May or June uh, at some point. The stepping back and reflecting on it from both your standpoint and the players, as difficult as it is sometimes following a tough loss or something you weren't happy with, how important is it? And how do you find a constructive way to do that? Well, I, I think it starts, it starts with your culture. And if you've got a receptive group, it gives you, an, it gives you a chance, an opportunity to have those conversations uh, I like to think that we do, uh, although we graduate a lot of maturity, and then we have a couple other upperclassmen with some uh, choices that they've got to make. I guess heading into the summer and into next uh, preseason, into next fall, as school rolls around uh, in the fall semester, we can use these opportunities that we've had in, in the past couple weeks and learn from all of them um, if we have a, a similar culture, which, again, I hope we do. 
Uh, we can learn from, from the wins and, and we can learn from the losses, specifically our, our last game. There's probably, again, hadn't watched it yet, but I know there's 20 or 30 things that we could have done a little bit better. That's aside just from the simple making shots aspect sure. you know, where we go, I think, over 14 in the second half from three. If one of those falls, maybe you win. If two of them fall, I'm, I'm sure you win. Three of them fall, you have no problem. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a big factor, of course. But, um, you know, missed block out here, a, a missed scouting report assignment. I remember uh, uh, Mackey hit a three right in front of our bench. We were playing him as a as a non-catch-and-shoot guy. We were running him off the line, made a big mistake there. That was late first half where he hits a big catch-and-shoot three. That was unacceptable in terms of how we prepared for that scouting report. That's just one of the things that, that stick out. We had a blown uh, press coverage late in the game. Uh, but, again, that's that's two or three. There's probably 20, you know. Mm-hmm. So for our guys to understand that we were this close from going to a Final Four, yet we made this many mistakes, hopefully there's a, there's a lot of uh, – they can see the opportunity in that and that, that there's a lot of confidence that can be gained from that. Um, but I think you can look at things vice versa as well and say – Guys, let's watch the East Tennessee State game. Let's watch the positives and negatives from that game. There are a lot of positives, of course. Let's watch some some of these negatives. Now, if these blown plays had cost us, if this ball hadn't bounced our way, if Devin hadn't stepped up early second half and made a couple of these threes and we had still made these mistakes, we would have ended the season with a tough loss in the SEC tournament and then having bowed out in one game in the NCAA tournament. So mm-hmm. I, I think you can learn either way. This team, this season, did a great job of that. Heck, we came off a 22-point win at home against Kentucky, and we watched it. We watched 10 or 12 of the things that we didn't do very well, and this group embraced that. They didn't whine about having to do that, and obviously it was a little bit easier to learn from some of those games where we came up a little bit short. Among the things that happened after South Carolina, you got a phone call from Coach K. Yeah. Can you tell us about that call? How surprising was it when your phone rang and that's yeah. who was on the other end? I was really neat. You know, we, we've gotten pretty close. And he's been he's been great just with his mentorship and, and his advice. Um, it, it's funny. Um, my father and I are very close, and, and he and Coach K are extremely close. And I think I told Dad maybe a, a day or two afterward. I said, hey, by the way, Coach K called right when I was getting on the bus. It was pretty it's pretty special, uh, not only the fact that he called and the timing of it, but some of the things that he said. And my dad said, I, I didn't ask him to call you. I didn't ask <laughs> so he, Direct it's instructions. Funny, it's funny he feels like he needs to tell me that right. still. He's, uh, he's a great father, and, and he's been so supportive and so educational in, in, in so many ways. He's been an incredible example. And he's quick to tell me that, hey, your relationship with Coach K is – that's your own relationship with mm-hmm. him. And uh, I guess going back to it, he made some great points. He, he educated me a little bit just about perspective, just about, hey, think about how far you've come. Think about your team and how much better some of these individuals have, have gotten and how proud you should be. Mm-hmm. And, and, and hold on to this. You know, hold on to this moment. It should give you confidence moving forward. You should have a, a huge sense of, of pride, you know, with your staff and, and your roster and um, – you know, heading back to Gainesville, you should be you should be proud to be a Gator, and and so on and so forth. So it was, it was really neat because I know he'd been in that situation, sure. probably a hundred times, and to hear from one of the all-time greats, arguably the best coach, ever, in all of sport. You know, not mm-hmm. only in college basketball, uh, but for him just to be watching hoops and and say, hey, I want to give that that young guy a call, and uh, and motivate him a little bit, encourage him a little bit, support him uh, was was really neat. 
that perspective is important because the tournament is so great largely because of how high the highs are, mm-hmm. but then how low the lows are for all but one team in it. That's so right. as your first time going through it, how did you work through that perspective, getting to be on mm-hmm. both sides of it from the thrill of Chioza's shot to right. the disappointment after Carolina? I'll be cliche with you. We, we just tried to approach each game like it was a one-game tournament, and that's it. And I, and I say that. We tried to do it in the SEC's tournament, and it didn't work very well, of course. But that, that's really the only way that I know how to do it, and it's the only way that I'll do it moving forward, just knowing that if you, if you want to make a run in, in terms of, of winning – three games in the tournament you've got to win your second one and the only one to win, is, win your second one is to win your first one and the only one way to win your first one is to get there and that's by approaching each game in a regular season as huge games in their own right I remember the, the Chris Chioza shot I remember just thinking was it a two or a three that, that's it and it, as soon as he says it, it's a three games over uh, I remember feeling elated for about maybe 60 seconds I mean it was an unbelievable feeling maybe I'm exaggerating uh, it could have been, say, two or three minutes. I remember the feeling in the locker room addressing the guys. And then immediately you go into the next scout. You go into, guys, we've got to go to sleep. That quick, You've got even to turn. after something like that, it's that quick. It, it, you know, I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but it was for me. Wow. And Denver can tell you who's in the locker room. But the, immediately the message goes to, guys, your phones are going to be blowing up all night. Mm-hmm. You've got to turn your phones off. You've got to get hydrated. The only way we're going to have success against South Carolina, they've got an advantage over us right now. They're all in bed. We've got to get to the hotel as quickly as possible, and we've got to limit distractions, filter the noise, as we talk about a lot. You've got to lay down, again, eat, hydrate, and turn your phones off. We'll regroup tomorrow on the scout, but that's first-order business. And that was that was immediately when we got into the locker room. Um, it just it happened so quick. The, the, turn, uh, the turnarounds are, are so quick uh, in the tournament. It was obviously a really, really neat thing to do, to be a part of. And looking at that shot, I mean, it was in one shining moment. It'll be played forever, and fans will always remember where they were when that happened and, and what they were doing. Given that you were on the wrong end of the Bryce Drew shot so many years ago, yeah. how much pride does it give you knowing that you were a part of something that people will remember forever? It, it was really neat, and, and I was the wrong side of the Bohannon shot. you know. So now I'm 0-2. I thought the basketball gods just hated me. <laughs> I thought we had no shot to uh... – to come up with one of those magical moments our, ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, I say that tongue-in-cheek, but it was awesome. For, you know, first off, for our guys not to hit rock bottom after the Bahannon shot, and then not only after the Bahannon shot, but, but then to get down five in overtime, mm-hmm. to keep plugging and to keep playing with purpose and poise and not losing our minds and, and hanging our heads and having bad body language and saying, man, we screwed this thing up in regulation – our body language didn't show that. We made some intelligent, poised plays that would lead you to believe that we still thought we had a real shot at winning this thing despite being down five. I mean, Canyonberry's block was incredible. Mm-hmm. Chris Chioza's drive without having to call a play, uh, broken play, uh, defense makes a mistake, he gets to the rim. And then, you know, before you know it, now we've got a chance with some missed free throws. You know, we had a little help, of course, for Chris to, uh, again, poise. He didn't throw up a half-court shot. He didn't. A lot of guys right there would get cut off, and they'd throw up a, a 60-footer or not even hit the rim. I mean, this, mm-hmm. he takes a really, really hard shot and made it look easy. Um, again, uh, I, I thought his poise was off the charts, and, uh, it, you know, it was amazing experience to be a part of being that on that side of it, as you mentioned, because I've been on the other side twice now. The Bohannon thing was extremely deflating. We had to get over it in a hurry. But the Bryce Drew shot in the NCAA tournament when I was in college was 
was something that I'll never forget, but Chris's shot makes me feel a little bit better about it. You go through the ringer of the SEC on a week-to-week basis, so you know how difficult it is. Having three teams from the league get into the Elite Eight and then South Carolina's run of the Final Four, mm-hmm. that seems to have changed the perception from an outsider perspective yeah. of just what kind of conference the SEC is. So what is the tangible impact of that change in perception, if there is any in your mind? I hope so, because I think that uh, we've been underrated and and underappreciated to a certain extent. But the argument that a lot of the the national media have gone with are are the computer numbers, and and the numbers Mm -hmm. don't lie. So I'm not going to sit here and say that everyone was wrong because the computer numbers say they say what they say. And as a league, we've got to fix those computer numbers, and we've got to continue to fix those. I thought we did a better job with the strength of schedule this year. I just thought that our league this year, the SEC, I thought we had some, some uh, just a handful of tough upsets in the non-conference. That mm-hmm. if you take away half of those, we just, a, a few bounces go our way. Uh, four or five of the teams that became really good in January, if they had maybe made that jump a month earlier and avoided a couple of those just tough conference losses for us, and you're sitting there and you're and you're – second or third in terms of the computer numbers as opposed to being fifth, I think you have more of an argument, especially complemented with the fact that we had three teams in the final eight, uh, to say, hey, we're a lot better than people think. And I think it puts closure to that argument. I, I think we made a big push with the three in the Elite Eight. And then when you consider the fact that Arkansas was close, mm-hmm. played the national champion really, really competitively, sure. of course, Vanderbilt loses on a fluke. You know, you, you could go on on. Georgia was really close. Uh, Alabama was probably in the conversation. Ole Miss was in the conversation. Mm-hmm. We could have had maybe a couple more in. And then we can follow it up with next fall taking care of business as a whole in our league a little bit better in terms of our non-conference strength of schedule and winning percentage. Our numbers should be where it, where it ought to be. And then hopefully this run by our league in the tournament means even a little bit more. When you reflect back on the season as a whole, which individuals did you feel like made the greatest strides from your first mm. year here to your second? There were a few of them. And, and the guy that I give the most credit to probably most often for the biggest jump is, is Devin Robinson. And I'll probably stick with it. Just The jump that he made was pretty incredible. He made a big jump about two-thirds of the way through last season. And then probably about halfway through this season made equally as big a jump. And um, I, just, I thought he was one of the most improved players in our league. Uh, he just he became a lot more accountable defensively and on the glass. He became a lot tougher, a lot more mature. I was very proud of the jump that he's made. Chris Shields has made a huge jump, of course. Justin Leon, between his junior and senior years of coming out of junior college, made that natural jump, had a great senior year. The addition of Canyon Berry, of course, was a big addition to our team. Kavaris Hayes made a, a good-sized jump. I'm probably leaving out a couple guys but number two, I would give to Casey Hill. Uh, Casey, the way he finished last season, made a huge jump there, especially in terms of his offensive production about the last month of last season. And I really carried over into this season. Played equally as well offensively. Uh, got his free throw uh, percentage way up from a season ago. But really grew in terms of his, his leadership qualities and became one of the better defenders in the Southeastern Conference. And I was really glad he was he was awarded so. You mentioned Devin Robinson, and there's a lot of people wondering what he's going to do next, and John Boone is in that conversation as well. Mm-hmm. By the time people hear this, these things can have changed. But at this point, what role do you and your staff play in helping guide those guys toward yeah. their future, whatever it may be? 
Well, the only role that I'm trying to play for Devin right now is to just gather genuine, authentic information, that, mm-hmm. and that's it. Just just real info uh, from NBA personnel, and there are there are ways to, to do that that have become a little bit easier uh, from the NBA, and so. We'll get feedback for him here in the very near future that, that we'll give to Devin and and you know Devin will will sit on those things and, and consider those things and, and make more of a thorough decision than I think people were able to make years years ago. Devin knows what we think of him here and the role that he would play for Gator basketball. Um, and so there's no there's no need to do a bunch of re recruiting because I, I want Devin to do what's best for Devin and uh, Devin and I have already talked. He's going to be a Gator for life. He was a part of a, an Elite Eight run. Mm-hmm. He's grown so much here in Gainesville. He'll always be special. Uh, he'll always be taken care of. Gator's always taken care of. He'll always be welcome back. We'd love to have him back, but um, we also will be very supportive with whatever he decides to do. There are some guys you cannot have back, even if you'd like them. There's four seniors that have to move on. Yeah. Can you talk about their legacy and, and what you'll remember about what they each brought to the program? Yeah, I'll start with Skylar Rimmer, a guy who's the most unheralded of the group. Um, Skylar, he's a Florida kid that's always worn that Gator uniform with with pride. He's been a hard worker. Uh, he's had a great attitude. He's been a great culture guy. He's been terrific in the locker room, kind of a quiet leader for us. Um, he's been as vocal as anybody on our team in closed-door team meetings, which is a little bit rare for a guy that's not getting a lot of minutes and not scoring a lot of points. And so he's been um, more valuable to this team than most people understand. Canyon Barry, I'll go with him next because he was only here one year, was a terrific addition, a great recruit, a very, very important recruit to this team. You know, without Canyon Barry coming to Florida, we don't go to the Elite Eight. We just don't. We don't have the year that we had. He turned down some other very attractive situations and opportunities to come here and major in, in nuclear engineering. And he had some huge games for us. We talked about Skyler with attitude. Canyon uh, sacrifices the word that pops into my head as much as anything because he, he could have started at most programs in the country. And we considered him a starter even though he didn't. He was the SEC Sixth Man of the Year, played starter minutes, mm-hmm. a lot of games, finished a lot of games for us, and was, uh, again, a, a terrific player for us. And he'll go on to play professional basketball if that's what he chooses to do. Justin Leon is as tough as any kid I've ever coached, has absolute zero regard for his body, <laughs> uh, would run through a wall if we told him it would help beat South Carolina in Elite Eight. He would literally try to bash his head into the wall. Might still uh, do it now if you told him he could change the <laughs> yeah, outcome. No question. Uh, love him, uh, just like those other two guys. He's He was a special kid, and I'll always um, appreciate the opportunity to coach him. He'll always be a special Gator. He developed his offensive game a bunch from the point uh, that he got here in, in, until uh, you know our, our exit in the NCAA tournament. He became, in some games, our most valuable offensive player, which I would never would have guessed uh, when we signed him at Louisiana Tech out of mm-hmm. out of junior college, uh, out, of, out of Little Shawnee, JUCO in <laughs> Illinois, and as a guy who played center for his high school team four years ago at, at skinny six seven. <laughs> uh, so we'll miss Justin as well. And then lastly, Casey Hill. You know, I, I think perseverance is, is the word that I like to use the most with him. He's a wonderful story. He's not, you know, we've all seen uh, some of the best athletic movies of all time. And, and you, you've seen the Titans and, and remember the Titans and you've seen mm-hmm. the, the Rudies of the world and, and the Rockies. And, and I'm not saying that, that Casey Hill's 
story is made for movies, but it's a really neat story that can happen to just about anybody in that uh, it doesn't end with him winning the national championship and it, do, it doesn't start with him being at rock bottom either. But when you consider the amount of um, obstacles that he's had to overcome, the amount of pressures and, and external stuff that's come his way uh, for a guy that was a McDonald's All-American from Florida to have, again, huge expectation at the University of Florida as the point guard and to go to the Final Four as a freshman mm-hmm. uh, in a backup role and then really for for two years struggled to find his way and wasn't, you know, he, he wasn't always the, the topic of positive conversation, not only from national media, local media, but by his own fan base. Um, and that's that's just the reality. It's their pressures um, that come with being the point guard at Florida. Not necessarily as many that come with being the quarterback at Florida. <laughs> but Casey has dealt with those pressures, and he's had a lot of ups. And he'll tell you he's had a lot of downs in his career. And to continue fighting and having that perseverance and, again, filtering that noise, becoming his own man, and leading a team back to the Elite Eight as a senior, and not doing it on his own terms, not not taking 25 shots a game, mm-hmm. not just kind of lucked into going to the Elite Eight, sacrificed in his own right, uh, became a better leader, became a lot tougher, decided, you know what, to help Florida get back to the Elite Eight, I've got to become an elite defender. Makes the All-SEC defensive team. Mm-hmm. You didn't see that coming from him, you know, early in his sophomore year, early in his junior year when I got here. I didn't see that coming. And so um, the developments that he's made off the floor, you know, with his maturity and, and with his leading are just as important as uh, some of the stuff that he's done on the floor. It's a great story. The, the guy ends up leading Florida back to the Elite Eight. Really proud of Casey Hill. When I talked to all of them at various points throughout the year and asked them what their goals were, they each said to get Florida basketball back in the tournament and back on the map. Mm-hmm. As we tie that into the next steps for you, you mentioned being out on the recruiting trail. What's been the impact of that, and what does it feel like now that Florida is back on the map as those guys intended to do? Yeah, it's, it's exciting because the, these guys got it done. They did. The four seniors that we just talked about got it done, and, and Johnny Bunu and Chris Chioza and Devin Robinson and, and a few more. And the goal is to continue – to have it done, to remain relevant. We're relevant right now. You know, people are talking about us, and in fact, people are hyping us up a little bit too much right now for next season. I, I don't, I don't necessarily temper like it. it a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I don't. We'll see. We've got a lot of work to do, but the goal is to remain relevant. Now that we've gotten relevant again, we've recreated the unbelievable culture that's uh, taken place here for so long, uh, and now we've got to maintain that culture. We've been well received on the recruiting trail. There are a lot of Gator fans nationally, um, tons obviously in the state. But wherever we go, our brand is so strong that when people see the the Gator shirt walk into the gym, they're they're excited for the Gators that we had a great year and and that uh, we're headed back in the right direction. And um, there are a lot of recruits and uh, families and coaches of recruits that uh, are excited about that direction as well. For your returners, what are going to be the biggest things you're looking for as you build toward next season? Probably maturity, uh, dependability consistently more than anything. Uh, all these guys will be better shooters, ball handlers, readers of screens. They'll all be a little bit quicker, faster, stronger when we come back next mm-hmm. fall. They're all going to make those improvements. But what we're missing, what we're going to lose with, again, Skylar Rimmer, who didn't play a lot. But he brought us those three characteristics a bunch. Uh, culture guys, company guys. Mm-hmm. 
Canyon Barry, you know what you're getting every day. Justin Leon, as good as I've ever been around in terms of whether we practice for 30 minutes or three hours, he was going to literally, again, <laughs> try to run through the wall for three hours. You know, Casey Hill, again, you knew what you were getting as a senior from him on a daily basis. We've got to replace that more than anything else. We'll figure out who's going to make free throws for us and what we're going to run offensively and what's our best defensive scheme and our second best. You know, we could go on and on, but who can we really depend upon, you know, on a Saturday noon game when things aren't going really well for us, when we had a quick turn because we played on Thursday night and had to go into overtime, mm-hmm. um, and we're playing on the road and, and we get a bad call. And, you know, who who can we depend on? Uh, we've got a lot to figure out in that regard. We've got to find leaders. Uh, we've got to find toughness. We've got to find maturity. We've got to get more consistent. We've got to figure out who we can depend upon. Wrapping things up, I wrongly assumed, like most people, that once the season was over, you probably had some free time. But let's say that at some point you do get some free time. What will that entail? What, what do you mm-hmm. do when you get to step away from all of this consuming job that you have? Sure. Uh, I, I only do one thing. I tell this to recruits and recruits parents and recruits coaches all the time. And, and sometimes uh, they say, well, coach, are, is that is that recruiting speak? Because you, you're self-defaming here a little bit. Mm-hmm. But it's the God's honest truth. I'm very boring. I'm very <laughs> simple. My staff's the same way. We're just not very exciting people to hang out with. Well, Jordan <laughs> sees some really bad movies. Because I talked <laughs> yeah. to him a few weeks ago, and he's got some clunkers yeah. in there. I am either in the gym with my guys – or I'm at the house with my kids, and that is it. That's our entire life. I haven't been to the movie theater in nine years because my oldest is nine. Don't go with I Jordan. I don't bowl. I don't fish. I don't hunt. Uh, now, a few times this summer, we'll try to get away for extended weekends uh, with my kids. The one thing that uh, my wife and, and kids and I like to do is, is we like to go over to the beach. And uh, we'll go play in the waves, and uh, we'll get away from it. But I'm always sure to bring my, my laptop to where we can continue watching the film, and, and you always have your iPhone with you to where uh, you can be texting and calling recruits. Well, Coach, it was a great year. Gator Nation is really proud of everything you accomplished. We thank you for spending some time with us. Thanks so much for having me. Before baseball and softball take center stage, moving rapidly toward their postseasons, last weekend the spotlight belonged to gymnastics, with the nation's best teams converging in St. Louis for the NCAA championships. Jenny Rowland's Gators were among the teams that reached the Super 6 title meet on Saturday, and while they came up a bit short, standout performances all around gave the Orange and Blue a number of reasons to smile. For our weekly chat around the Gator Nation with Scott Carter and Chris Harry, we kick things off by getting Scott's take on the action near the arch. The Gators went out there uh, after finishing fourth last year in the uh, finals. Uh, They went out there and improved a spot, and Quite frankly, no one was going to catch Oklahoma on Saturday in the Super 6. Uh, the Sooners put up a record for the event. You know, they've been holding it for 36 years. They put up the all-time highest score. Really uh, just on. And, you know, it was really a battle for second between a couple of SEC rivals, Florida and LSU. And it looked mm-hmm. like the Gators were uh, going to be safe in second after Alex McMurtry nailed a uh, perfect 10 on her bars routine. But then LSU closed really strong on beam and, and edged the Gators kind of like in the SEC championships. You know, LSU was first. Uh, so Florida ends up third. You know, and just talking to Ginny uh, Rowland afterward, uh, you could tell that she's pretty happy the second year that she's been leading the program. Uh, this is a very young team. They're only losing one senior, Claire Boyce, who was already gone. She she got hurt in midseason. She was out at the mm-hmm. championships, but she hasn't been able to compete. 
And there's certainly, a, anytime you have a gymnast like Alex McMurtry returning, she went out there and won the NCAA All-Around Championship the fifth time in six years that Gator has won that. She joined, wow. obviously, two-time winners, Keecher Hunter and Bridget Sloan. And anytime you join those two, you know uh, you know you're at the top of the uh, field. And they got her back again next year. But again, pretty nice uh, finish to this season as well. And the mood is interesting. With gymnastics, it's a little bit different. There aren't necessarily clear winners and losers that we usually delineate in other sports. So the mood was, was a pretty celebratory one, even though they didn't win the championship. Yeah, you know, I've said this to a couple of people this week. I mean, I've covered a lot of professional and college sports over my years. and I've never covered any event quite like the NCAA Gymnastics Championships because mm-hmm. you've got six teams competing there on one night. you got six different fan bases. And so you might be watching Florida on beam and right about that time, you'll hear the Alabama fans roar because right. their team did something great on floor. And then a few seconds later, the Gator fans scream because, you know, they, they did something well. It's just a, a unique environment. Uh, it was well-received out in St. Louis, the first time it's ever been there. But, yeah, you're right, Adam. It's a, it's a different kind of animal. And, you know, after the game, all six teams were up there celebrating, sharing in the moment, taking pictures as teams and with other teams, and it's it's definitely unique in that standpoint, but I think that's what makes people who really love the sport, who follow it, I think that unique uh, culture probably, uh, you know, that's part of their draw to the sport. Moving on to football, we talked about the spring game last week, and now postscript to that is some of the injuries that come out of spring and trying to figure out where you are moving through the summer into the fall. What's the latest from Jim McElwain on that front? Well, he did release an injury report last week, and not a lot of new on there. I mean, a couple of guys you knew that were going to be reevaluated were, you know, Rick Wells and Jordan Sherritt, who missed spring. Uh, they're still hoping to be back later in the year. I think the new one was obviously we touched on a little bit last week. You know, Kyle Trask had his arthroscopic knee surgery. He should be back. But really more so what happened after the injury release report was, uh, you know, you got a guy, T.J. McCoy, who gets hit by an alleged drunk driver Mm -hmm. while picking up his girlfriend early in the morning from the library. Neither really suffered life-threatening injuries. Uh, I know uh, TJ spent a few days in the hospital, uh, but, you know, he was active on social media, he and his family, to show fans that, you know, he had some bandages on his head and some scratches on his face and stuff like that. But it looks like he'll he'll be okay to return, no broken bones or anything. But uh, that was probably the big news after – McElwain released his uh, injury report. Again, nothing really new or major on the the injury report from spring. Uh, Most of the guys who are banged up, I think they expect them back by fall camp. It's just going to take some time to heal. And now's the perfect time to be in that situation because that's what they have, some time to uh, Mm -hmm. get healthy and get ready for next season. Moving things over to baseball, a uh, big weekend coming up for Kevin O'Sullivan's team in that national spotlight with the Thursday night game opening the series against South Carolina. Yeah, it's a big SEC series, uh, you know, two of the strong teams in the SEC East. Uh, it's really a wide-open race, uh, Adam, in the conference right now in the division, and Florida and South Carolina are both right there with, uh, you know, Vanderbilt, Kentucky, pretty wide open. And, you know, it's it's not only a big weekend for the Gators uh, with South Carolina coming in town, but they made it even a bigger weekend by what they did up in Vanderbilt. You know, this is a team that we've talked a lot all year about, that we know they have the pitching, waiting on the offense, and so get this, they go up to uh, Vanderbilt, they win two out of three, which mm-hmm. is always tough to do in Nashville, score 30 runs, <laughs> but not in three games, two. It, it was a weird one. They scored 10 in the opener, get shut out in the second game in a great pitching matchup between uh, Brady Singer and Wright uh, for Vanderbilt. And uh, and then, of course, they break out for 20 runs. 20 runs. Three, which mm. uh, 
it's a cliche, but it's baseball. It's sometimes hard to explain. Uh, that was certainly one of the most probably a head scratch and performance of the year, considering that this is a team that I don't know how many times they scored in double figures. I know they haven't touched close to 20. But, you know, that's uh, got to be something that Kevin O'Sullivan and uh, his staff took a lot from because you know how the game works. Uh, one guy starts hitting, that confidence sometimes contagious. Breathes. And, you know, they did it without Mike Rivera, who uh, – you know, is going to miss some time. So uh, they're getting it done with uh, some players you thought they would. And, of course, as long as those three starting pitchers uh, continue to do what they do, they should be uh, in line for a lot of wins down the second half of the season. But, really, this South Carolina series opens up a uh, – I mean, it's hard to believe, but I'm looking at the schedule here. They've got, what, five more conference series, and it's starting with this one. So, I mean, it's really getting on to the home stretch of the season. And uh, this is a big one starting off with South Carolina. Both of these teams, they've got a lot of recent history against each other. So, uh, it's going to be a good weekend out at McKeithen Stadium. If we're talking about great pitching, that immediately leads us to softball. They continue to dominate in that department, Chris. The number one ERA in the nation as a staff, and what Kelly Barnhill has done recently has been unlike anything I think we've ever seen, and that's really saying something. I think if uh, she keeps having these pitching performances, Adam, they'll be they'll be measuring her ERA in integers. <laughs> I guess she took a 0-2-7 into the Kentucky game and no hit them, walked one batter. So she's the best pitcher in the country. I don't know if if Tim Walton would openly admit that and just say that because obviously it puts a target on her back. But I think she's okay with it. I mean, uh. And talking to Aubrey Monroe, obviously, who caught Kelly Barnhill's fresh. Remember, she was probably – you were there every game, Adam. She was the third best pitcher on the team last year, right? Oh, by far. Yeah, and now she's the best – probably the best pitcher in the country. And I guess what Aubrey was saying is, like, she got like, three different elements to her rise ball, and you just – and you, you can't figure out which one is coming. Mm-hmm. And she constantly is fooling batters. And the velocity she has on it, I mean, you, I mean, just watching her as great a pitcher as Delaney Gorley and Alicia Casio are, I mean, you could sense the speed – how much faster Kelly Barnhill's uh, pitches are. And obviously when she's she's, she's in the circle, the Gators have a chance to beat anybody in the country. Uh, lost um, one game in the three-game series at Kentucky. What's the record now? 40-3, and three, back up to number one in the country. Um, beat Florida State, beat Florida last, State week. last week. As long as you bring that up, Adam. I mean, that, that was as good a game as there was. Mm-hmm. Probably as good a softball game as will be played in the country this year. When you think about it, the number one team, Florida State came here with the number one team in the country. Gators are number three. Place was packed. They set the four days after setting the attendance record, they broke the attendance record and set it again. I actually talked to Scott Strickland after the game, and he said, "As if we needed any reason, any more reason to build a mm-hmm. new stadium and expand our stadium, let's you know, let's get this thing going." It's amazing what Tim Walton has done here. So, um, great work by you know where the Gators are right now. Ole Miss series this weekend at fifteen and two, I believe, in the league versus uh, Texas A and M and Tennessee at eleven and three, tied for second place. So, a chance to kind of pad that lead I think Tim Walton would probably like to see his team hit a little more mm-hmm. but as long as they got pitching they're going to be in every game and with a chance to win every game we had a chance to hear from Mike White earlier in the podcast really interesting to get his thoughts on the season as a whole kind of in the aftermath of an unbelievable run and one of the things we talked about was the future for some of those players considering leaving and we now know we didn't know at the time that Devin Robinson has decided to leave so can you talk about what went into that decision for Devin Robinson and what that means for Florida moving forward? Well, we've probably discussed this uh, the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, Devin Robinson probably would have left last year if he put his name in, if they hadn't discovered when he took his physical that he had that stress fracture in his foot that required surgery and a lengthy rehab period. But in the big picture, Adam, I think it was probably a blessing, certainly a blessing for Florida because Devin Robinson obviously had his best year here 
as a Gator mm-hmm. with, uh, I think it was just over 11 points a game, six and a half rebounds a game. Uh, really, what Devin did to enhance his uh, his NBA stock, uh, and and I'm you know scanning these mock drafts, he's, he doesn't appear on a, a lot of them. He shows up on a couple. Mm-hmm. So prevailing thought is he's going to be, be maybe a, a mid second round pick. But I think his goal is just get into camp, get into a combine, do some stuff, and then you know maybe impress some people and maybe start that professional basketball journey of his. Because Dorian Finney-Smith didn't get drafted last year and played an entire season basically with the Dallas Mavericks. So um, I think Devin Robinson, when we went to the uh, Oklahoma City-Dallas uh, game, saw Dorian Finney-Smith playing and saw that. And I was really, you know, I think these guys saw that and said, man, if Dodo can do it just by, sure. just by playing hard. So Devin really stepped up his defensive game uh, by necessity because once Johnny Bunu got hurt, you're taking your best post defender out of the equation. And Devin really bought into what the coaches really asked him to do relative to helping and helping the helper, as it were, and, and, and using his length around the basket to, you know, not only block shots, and he did block some, but to, to deter shots and uh, come over and just, you know, be a pest, if it were, and stunning down on guys in the post and what have you. And he, he got really, really good at it, and he enjoyed doing it. So I, I give him a lot of credit to how he, I don't want to say remade his game, but he kind of did and, you know, became a really good teammate became more unselfish and really was a, a catalyst for what turned out to be a, a phenomenal season. I think I think a lot of people will remember the end of the South Carolina game in the Elite Eight. He was crestfallen mm-hmm. uh, that the team fell short of the Final Four because I think you know he was a guy who really believed they were going to win that game that day. Uh, he was very excited to be playing that game. He didn't play that well. But he is – I'm over there in the practice facility seeing their workouts. He's been terrific. He was still doing all the, the strength workouts and stuff with strength and conditioning coordinator Preston Green. He was fabulous in there helping out the guys, encouraging and that kind of thing. So still very much a part of the team. But now he's ready to branch off. He's hired an agent. He's done. So now what happens now? Uh, you're taking a big chunk out of that mm-hmm. out of that lineup. You know, Now you got your attrition because last week we talked about uh, Eric Hester leaving. You're talking about your natural offseason attrition. So now you got to find another front court guy or some guys have to step up, whether that's Jalen Hudson, whether that's Keith Stone. But I would imagine, and I know for a fact, the locators are going to be into the grad transfer market. It certainly worked for them well this year mm-hmm. with Canyonberry. And there will be some candidates uh, coming in and out of those doors over there in the practice facility, maybe get some instant impact from, uh, from guys like that. I think a good selling point when it comes to grad transfer is that this team is ready to win. And uh, Canyon Berry came here last year, having been at College of Charleston and never experienced in the NSA tournament. He wanted to place himself in a situation where he had a chance to compete for a championship. And he did. And he was a huge part of this team at SEC Six Man of the Year, uh, made some big shots. And so now they can use that as a prototype of how to sell. The other thing is if you go after a grad transfer who's got really good numbers, he's going to come to a good team. So you have to also sell him on maybe taking a reduced role. Mm-hmm. And do you want to win? You want to step back, step those numbers, those statistics back a little bit, uh, and in exchange for winning, and sacrifice a little bit of that. And like Kenyon Berry did, um, that's going to be the selling point from the Florida coaches. And uh, I would imagine they're going to help themselves on that front. Right after the tournament was over, there was all the preseason, the way too early preseason top twenty fives, and and even we saw Joe Winardi did a bracket for next year, and Florida was a number one, number one seed, seed yeah. in mm-hmm. that bracket. Mm-hmm. 
can they still be a number one type seed team, or does this take them down a little bit? Well, I mean, would you have expected to see them as a number one seed in a even as early of a of a bracketology as that? Would you did that surprise you? It was surprising. Yeah. So if you saw them as a two or a three seed, you say oh, that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. The team should be pretty good next year. Yeah, Devin Robinson leaving is is a hole. If John Nibunu decides not to come back, they would expect him to be back or in December and January. And granted, coming off knee surgery, so what are you going to get? Is there going to be right. some uh, uh, of some hesitancy on his part or whatever? So you don't you don't know what's going to happen there. But I would imagine that the hole is going to be filled by a player who's ready to play right away. We'll have one year left of eligibility. It will be a grad transfer with some stripes on his shoulder and a guy that will be able to help them win. So how much will it impact them? I think Florida will go into the season next year as the pick to finish second or third in the Southeastern Conference, which will put them, you know, right, I would think in the upper echelon of a two, three, or four seed or what have you. Lots of good stuff this week, as always. Look forward to talking to you guys next week. We'll hit the NFL Draft. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Adam. And that's going to do it for today's show. If you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave review to help us continue to grow. Join us next week as you'll hear from your favorite former Gators as they prepare for the draft, and we get you all set for the biggest event on the NFL's off-season calendar. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, thanking you for joining us on Gator Tales.